This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vianne, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. And thanks so much for listening. For the week of May 15th, 2023, here are some top stories. KJZZ has been committed to covering Arizona's water challenges in our ongoing series, Every Last Drop. And this week, we've been looking into the contaminants that pose threats to the state's increasingly precious supply of drinking water. Treatment plants can catch and remove a lot of those contaminants, but how strong is that safety net and the regulations that knit it together? Nicholas Gerbis reports. Monitoring, testing, and cleaning up Arizona drinking water is a gargantuan task. The Arizona Department of Environmental Quality regulates 1,500 water systems across the state, from something as large as the Phoenix Municipal Network to something as small as a Mojave County gas station. Our responsibility is to make sure that those water systems are regularly sampling for water contaminants. Trevor Bajori directs ADEQ's Water Quality Division, which helps ensure EPA safe drinking water standards are met for around 90 microns microbes, chemicals, and radiological particles. But the EPA cannot set standards until the research is in, if then. So could or does Arizona water treatment cope with emerging contaminants? ASU environmental engineer Trevor Boyer has his doubts. It's not really designed to remove total dissolved solids, not designed to remove things like nitrate, not designed to remove pharmaceuticals, not designed to remove PFAS. And that's the problem. Treatment and detection will always lag industry, and it could take years to grasp the impact of what plants don't remove. And there are already plenty of known issues to cope with. Here at the 24th Street Water Treatment Plant, charts, graphs, and camera feeds monitor everything from chemical balance to weather, security, and potential overflows and floods. This operator room boasts all the necessities, sample sinks, testing tools, and goldfish. We actually have goldfish down at the raw water. That would alert us if there was any kind of contamination or anything in the canal. Jeremy Smithson is the water facility supervisor. Goldfish are ideal coal mine canaries for contamination, especially since they aren't killed by sediment from large rainfalls, snow melts, or wildfires that often affect the salt and verde rivers that feed this plant. Underground, Arizona's mineral richness can leach arsenic or uranium into groundwater, which is also more likely to contain PFAS, the non-biodegradable chemicals behind many non-stick, water-resistant, and fire-retardant products. Because of the way the chemical is used on the land surface, you see it showing up in groundwater in many places throughout the state. Plants also use lye to boost chlorine disinfection by balancing pH. pH can affect how water looks, tastes, and smells. When off balance, it can damage pipes. If it sounds like water treatment involves dumping loads of scary stuff in to get other scary stuff out, it does. But plants are highly regulated and closely monitored. Kelly Smith is a chemist at the plant. Chemists check for harmful chemicals, organic carbon, and other factors that can affect operations or harm health. We test the raw water that comes in from the canal. We test it at a couple of different sampling points within the plant and then the final product that goes out. Removed solids pass through a centrifuge that dries them for transport to a landfill. The clear water passes through charcoal filters, which can remove odors, bad tastes, pesticides, herbicides, and some industrial pollutants. 
It's possible filters might trap long-chain PFAS, but short-chain molecules could still slip through. Those are less effectively absorbed. And so what that means is your activated carbon bed is going to have to be replaced more often. Whether plants replace or regenerate filters, the process disrupts a carefully coordinated system. If you're not following processes, you can easily back up a plant. Next comes chlorine dioxide disinfection, which kills viruses and some parasites. Other measures used by plants include ozone, hydrogen peroxide and UV light, and membranes in reverse osmosis. All have their pros and cons, costs and wear and tear. Smithson says he struggles to get this point across to superiors who push to exceed compliance standards. As long as you're meeting compliance, we don't need to drive compliance to make it even better if we're hurting the plant. Many experts shrug off other emerging contaminants like pharmaceuticals or microplastics as too poorly understood, overblown, or mainly confined to effluent. But as water restrictions tighten, toilet-to-tap consumption, rebranded by officials as direct potable reuse, has become a serious option. Troy Hayes is the City of Phoenix Water Services Director. That is a supply that right now is discharged to the Salt River, which potentially could be sent to an advanced water purification facility to be treated and eventually put back in as drinking water. In the end, river or well, influent or effluent, it's all one water. Barring better answers and some careful but courageous action, this round river, as conservationist Aldo Leopold would call it, could make Arizona water infrastructure not unlike some Class 6 rapids, dangerous, congested, and often unrunnable. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix. You can hear the whole series and find other water reporting in the Every Last Drop series at water.kjzz.org. In Fronteras News. Title 42 came to an end on Friday after more than three years. The pandemic-era protocol was put in place by the Trump administration and expanded under President Biden. As Elisa Resnick reports from our Fronteras desk, lawmakers from both sides of the aisle have long insisted that ending the protocol would bring chaos to the border. But like in other places along the border, those claims were a far cry from reality in Nogales. Title 42 officially came to a close just before midnight Eastern Time on Thursday, 9 p.m. in Arizona. The entrance of the Dickensini port of entry was almost empty. An elote vendor shocked pale ears of corn and a handful of aid workers and journalists stood by. But no asylum seekers. It was a silent end to a policy that has transformed asylum access here. Chelsea Sacco is with the legal aid group Florence Immigrant and Refugee Rights Project. It's a policy that's affected so many lives in immeasurable ways. This is a busy border crossing that serves as a portal for Nogales' binational community and bustling cross-border trade. It's also become a hub for migrants looking for protection. Back in 2021, dozens of asylum-seeking families and supporters gathered here on a rainy day for a demonstration against Title 42. They carried vaccine cards and other travel documents and stood in line with other travelers. Each one was turned away that day. Sako says it's surreal remembering marches like that now. And to have seen them fight for access to vaccines and access to safety and access to employment, and then for it to kind of end on this quiet street in front of the port, it feels a little bit disbelief. 
Earlier Thursday, Salko was at an aid center called the Kino Border Initiative to brief around 200 people about what was coming next. Volunteers announced Title 42 was finally coming to a close and a round of applause erupted. Court battles have very nearly ended Title 42 a handful of times before this month. Asylum-seeking families stuck here have tried to keep up with policies as they change. Pedro de Velasco, with the Kino Border Initiative, says their stories are getting lost in the rhetoric. They're actually running, fleeing this violence, this per, uh, persecution in their home countries, and they're hoping to get to safety. And what they've been finding for the last three years and even before, is a shut door. Migrants hoping to ask for asylum at the port now must use the CBP-1 app. That's the Customs and Border Protection program launched here and a handful of other ports in January. It allows migrants to apply for a fixed amount of daily asylum appointments. De Velasco says that isn't realistic for everyone. It's heavily relying on, you know, believing that every asylum seeker has a cell phone and that they have a smartphone and that they know how to you know, download and operate this application, and, and that's the real issue. Under the Biden administration's newly released asylum rule, migrants who don't use the app will be blocked from accessing asylum at the border if they haven't applied for protection and been denied in another country they pass through. Legal experts say it's still unclear how the new asylum restriction will work on the ground or at the port. It also faces challenges in court. The morning after Title 42 ended began just like any other in Nogales. A line of pedestrian crossers sneaked its way past the metal turnstile of the port. Wilma Rafael Cardona Castillo was one of a small group of asylum seekers waiting there for CBP-1 appointments. He says he left home eight months ago, traveling through rugged, deadly jungle in the Darien Gap between South and Central America. Our country is in a critical situation with the government, and we can't live there, he says. He and his girlfriend got separated after being taken into custody along the Texas border. She's in the U.S. now. Getting the CBP-1 appointment here is a chance to reconnect with her. The experience is very difficult, he says. But you have to fight for the well-being of your family. Alisa Resnick, KJZZ News, reporting from Nogales, Sonora. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In Tribal Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. New research has framed the history of horses in Native American communities. It's a relationship that began long before the arrival of European colonists. As those cultures overlapped, particularly in the Old West, the familiar clip-clop of horseshoe became a telltale sign of a cowboy's ride. But most Native American horses are unshod, ridden on rocky and sandy terrain that naturally wore down hooves. Usage has evolved, but horses remain a vital resource in indigenous communities. And as Almacias reports, one Arizona farrier is on a mission to teach proper care from the ground up. It's a windy day in late April with dust blowing across the arena on the San Carlos Reservation, several miles east of Globe. Eight young men, all members of the San Carlos Apache tribe, are gathered around several horses and a trailer workshop. 
George Good, a retired farrier, is leading this two-week program. He is a member of the Yaqui tribe near Tucson. According to Good, no tribe in the U.S. offers a horseshoeing program. He says knowing how to shoe horses and care for the animals is a valuable skill that many Native Americans can use. Good founded the Native American Horse Education Foundation. For sure it should be part of our culture. We're born with horses. Horses is a big medicine. And we know nothing about their feet. One of the men assisting George is Adrian Morgan. He is a member of the Diné tribe in northern Arizona. He took Good's course 20 years ago. He says that provided him with a steady income. So I started shooting horses on the side the weekends, and during the week I went to the University of New Mexico. So I graduated from college while I was shooting horses. COVID shut down his business, and even though he has an office job now, he takes time off to help Good with new students. Down. Push down the hoof puller. Push down while you're pulling after a classroom lecture, the students have gathered around the trailer. Good put together and paid for the trailer workshop that contains toolkits, horseshoes, charts illustrating horse anatomy, a couple of small furnaces, and a myriad of other instruments and tools used to shoe horses. One of the men grabbing his tool bag and starting to work on a horse is Sean Kenny, a member of the San Carlos tribe. He says he thought shoeing horses was simple. Slap it on, put a nail in there when you're good, but now it's a lot more anatomy to it. He says knowledge about the horse's anatomy and how its hoof needs to be properly trimmed is a valuable tool, something he says he would like to see passed on to younger generations. The session continues with the horses throughout the morning. The horses belong to a cattle ranch on the San Carlos Reservation. The ranch will supply the horses for the training. It's a win-win. The ranch gets its horses cared for, and the students get hands-on training. Luke Zospa has worked construction jobs and says he has shooed a couple of horses in his life. I've seen it done before, but I never really like went in depth into it. Yeah, like, like gauge-wise and like we're jumping into like the anatomy of the hoof. The two portable furnaces are fired up as students prepare to heat a horseshoe for a hot shoe or setting. After the hoof has been trimmed and scraped, the farrier will heat a shoe in the forge and place it briefly on the hoof to sear the spot where the shoe will be set. Good explains that even though there is a lot of physical work involved, it's not just about hammering a shoe into place. Well, horseshoeing is an art and a science. It's both. And, and until you learn that, uh, you could actually uh, cripple the horse. It, it just depends on how long before he comes crippled. His feet has to be balanced for the weight of the rider. The two-week course is intended to give students basic skills to care for their own animals. Good also offers an eight-week course that earns certification as a farrier. He says along with the horseshoeing, the program provides business training, lessons on how to manage supplies, and even how to deal with the public. In the meantime, this session is focused on the basics how to set a horseshoe property. Then you can really see the nail heads. Al Macias for KJZZ News reporting from the San Carlos Reservation. In business news, Tempe voters on Tuesday rejected a set of ballot measures that would have created a new venue for the Arizona Coyotes. City officials say the Hockey Arena and Entertainment District will not move forward. Matthew Casey reports. 
The propositions would have changed Tempe's general plan, rezoned a landfill, and greenlit a development deal with the Coyotes. But the opposition group called Tempe First declared victory over the NHL team and those who pushed the project. Leader Don Penich Thacker says the results send a clear message to the Tempe City Council and would-be developers. Residents really care about our community and we want to have a say in how our city continues to grow. Supporters of the Coyotes gathered a couple miles away from the Tempe First crowd. The team's president and CEO called it very disappointing that voters did not approve the ballot measures. Matthew Casey, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Now from KJZZ Original Productions. Let's hear how to make friends, even as an adult. Here's the show co-host, Lauren Gilger. Earlier this month, the U.S. Surgeon General released an advisory about a public health crisis. And this time, it's not COVID-19. It's loneliness. Recent research shows about half of adults in the U.S. say they experience loneliness daily. And it can have serious health consequences, from increased risk of stroke and heart disease to depression and dementia. But our next guest says you can build the friendships you need to help combat loneliness and isolation, even as an adult. Anna Goldfarb is a friendship journalist and the author of the forthcoming book, Modern Friendship, How to Nurture Our Most Valued Connections. I spoke with her more about this and why she thinks we find ourselves facing a crisis of loneliness. Well, I think it's the natural culmination of a breakdown of our institutions. I, I mean, social trust has never been lower. People have less faith in their religious communities, in government, in their social institutions, like across the board, mm-hmm. trust is plummeting. Hmm. Approval for Congress has never been lower. Approval for the Supreme Court has never been lower. And I think it's a natural expected result of having these institutions fail us. It's interesting that you go to the institutional level first, but that makes a lot of sense in the sense that, like, when our grand structures in society start to break down, so do the things in our immediate everyday lives. A hundred percent. And social media has only exacerbated the breakdown of societal trust, but for a different reason. On social media, anything negative or controversial gets the most attention and it gets promoted Because the algorithm is interested in keeping our attention and it's human nature to spend more attention on the negative things. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So it's sort of this perfect storm of our institutions are failing us and we simultaneously have a mass way of communicating that rewards negativity and controversy. Hmm. So I think that it's this is expected and inevitable to have trickle-down ramifications on our personal relationships. People are more weary of people they don't know. You know, there's large-scale sociological reasons why people have lower trust. And then there's the micro-personal reasons why people have lower trust. And part of the sociological reasons are people move around a lot more, Mm. um, a lot more than previous generations. And by moving around a lot more, you don't have as many deep roots. You don't know your neighbors. You don't have a strong sense of community. I mean, my grandma 
lived in the same town her whole life, knew everybody on the street. I don't even know my next door neighbor's name. I yeah, mean, yeah. I know she has a shaved head and a Kia. That's about <laughs> it. I don't know anything about her. Yeah. And part of that is I don't have a reason to know anything about her. Um, people are more independent. People can, you know, self-select the groups they belong to in a way that our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents didn't necessarily have. Mm-hmm. You might be really involved in a Discord group about turtles. <laughs> no, and that's like you're so geeked out on turtles and like that's where you spend your energy. And you don't need to know your neighbor's name because they don't offer you anything that's as compelling or interesting as this turtle subgroup. So mm. <laughs> we live in a different world. We have different, historically different forces pulling on us than any other generation. Yeah. So that's why we see what we see. That's why loneliness is you know, a catastrophe. Loneliness is a public health emergency because of all of these, the culmination of all of these changes. That's so interesting and so hard. Yeah. So, I mean, what does that look like in real life? Like loneliness as a public health crisis? Like I know there's actually like health implications for people. I don't need you to get into that. But as you're researching this idea of adult friendship and the lack of it and the challenges to it, What's missing for people? Like, how does this affect them when they are sort of chronically lonely? It's wonderful to have friends. It's wonderful to have people who care about you and check up on you. But that's not magic of friendship. The Mm. magic of friendship is when someone else considers you to be their best friend. And that gives us a sense of belonging, that feeling like you matter, feeling like someone notices you and appreciates you and that's a better feeling that that is that contributes to your well-being even more than having a rolodex of friends or uh instagram follow list and that's because that feeling comes from being considered someone else's best friend and that takes effort that takes sublimating your own needs and desires it's considering other people it's tweaking your behaviors and the things you say it's just harder it takes effort Yeah, it takes a lot of effort. And I think some people aren't willing to put in the effort, not because they're bad people, just because it's abstract. You know, if you have bills to pay, you you need to go to work to pay your bills. And friendships are more abstract. And they're seen as a frivolous thing, as a, you know, the icing. How does friendship contribute to the bottom line of your household? And it contributes in more abstract ways that are harder to quantify if you're doing a balance sheet. So so let's and talk it, about those, right? Like those those ways in which friendships pay off in dividends, right? Like if we want to keep the money analogy going, right? What are the the tangible and maybe the not so tangible benefits of maintaining friendships into adulthood, which, as you say, sort of disappear and fade off and don't become a priority for various reasons? I mean... Your friend can sit with you in the waiting room for a scary medical appointment. Your friend can tell you, you know, you really should have that checked out. Mm -hmm. They can help practically. You know, I can watch your dog while you're away. They can make your life run a little bit smoother. There's trust. You can trust someone to check your mail, water your plants. And there's emotional needs of when you're having a crummy day. Like, can you help listen to me vent? Can you help just spend some time with me? Friends do all sorts of like incredible things all the time (laughs) that you don't plan on. 
So let's end then, Anna, by talking a little bit about how we can all foster these things. Like, right, like give us your your advice page part of this, because it seems as if it is much harder for people these days because of the kind of fractured world that we live in to keep these kinds of and foster these kinds of friendships as adults. You know, I learned in my research that friendships require three things. Desire, which is who you yearn and long to spend time with diligence, which is who you prioritize to spend time with, and delight, which is who you actually enjoy spending your time with. (laughs) And what I learned about desire was that you need a clear and compelling reason to get together with a friend because your friendship needs to be about something. Mm -hmm. And that is where I think the message gets lost because people hear you should reach out to a friend but it's like, why? What are you talking about? <laughs> What's the carry to keep you to keep you talking mm-hmm. so that you can grow the friendship? So I think instead of saying, I wish I had more friends, a better way to complete the thought is I wish I had friends to do this with, this activity with, something with. I wish mm-hmm. I had friends to learn how to knit with. I wish I had friends to start a book club with. I wish I had friends to take swimming lessons with. And that can help point you in a direction to see if that reason is compelling for someone else. Yeah. And when the reason is compelling, both people make time for it. They invest time and they become friends. They become vital friends. Hmm. Just these little, little tweaks can make people enjoy the time they spend with you, which will only increase the delight, the desire, the diligence. And then you got yourself a friend. And then you got yourself a friend. All right. Anna Goldfarb, a friendship journalist and author of the forthcoming book, Modern Friendship, How to Nurture Our Most Valued Connections. Anna, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about this. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And finally, in education news. As part of the series on graduates, here's a young man with a dream, Cody Carter, or Cody the Twirler, as he calls himself. My baton twirling journey started when I was seven years old. It's kind of a funny story and an unconventional route, the way I started. My parents are both golf instructors, and they take me to the golf course, and instead of hitting golf balls, I started twirling my golf club. My mom immediately saw what I was doing. She, she knew what I needed. She found me a baton. She found me a coach. And then from there, the rest was history. I am a feature twirler with the Sun Devil Marching Band at ASU, so I get to perform at all of the football games, and then I, with that I also get to perform at, I perform at basketball games, at volleyball games, and softball games, so I do a lot of the ASU athletic events, and then from twirling at those events, a lot of other organizations around ASU and student groups have invited me to come perform at their events. Some of the highlights uh, of, of my college career and baton twirling, the, the biggest one that is the most recent was completing my honors thesis with the Barrett Honors College. And what I did for that was I took my passion for baton twirling and then I mixed it with my major of digital culture theater technology. And the end result was basically having a baton, an LED baton with with sensors on it that track the the real-time movements of the baton. And then it goes to a computer that has a generative modular synthesis program. So it's making the baton is making music live. And then in addition to that, that computer is also sending data to a lighting network. And, and the baton is changing lighting design live. So the results of that you know year-long honors thesis project is I now have a baton that can 
interpret all the movements I'm doing and, and make music live and change lighting live and every uh, sound you hear, every light you see changing is a result of my twirling. Now that I just graduated, my goal is to keep twirling professionally. So uh, what I'm thinking about is maybe twirling for either like the Cardinals or the Phoenix Suns with their in-game entertainment squads. Another big long-term goal of mine is to twirl for Cirque du Soleil with one of their productions. The funny thing is I've had a lot of opportunities offered while I was in college. I was actually at an international circus competition last spring and there was casting people from Cirque du Soleil and there was cruise ships and there was touring circuses and I had some offers to do some things for the fall of this past year. Um, and I kind of just had to say, you know, I, I have one more year of college and I can't take it right now. So that's the thing again I'm most excited about is now being able to kind of take these opportunities that are being given to me and being able to, you know, capitalize on them now that I've graduated from ASU. This has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.